Hi, hi, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a cultured podcast about all things infectious disease. We use consult questions to dive into ID clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host and a combined adult and pediatric ID fellow. Here on Febrile, we use patient cases and consult questions to learn about high-yield ID topics. We are now on our fourth and final episode for our HIV summer series entitled Fresh Start. I am excited to welcome our guest today, Dr. Leslie Anane. Leslie is an assistant professor of pediatrics at Indiana School of Medicine and the Ryan White Center of Pediatric Infectious Disease and Global Health. She also serves as the medical director of the Pediatric HIV Clinic at Riley Hospital for Children. She conducts international research on HIV and TB care for children and adolescents in partnership with the AMPATH program in Western Kenya and the multi-regional international epidemiology databases to evaluate AIDS consortium. Her NIH-funded research investigates adolescent disengagement from HIV care in Western Kenya, as well as clinical tools and interventions to promote adolescent retention in HIV services. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about it. So as everyone's favorite cultured podcast, I'd like to start the show off by asking if you would share a little piece of culture that brings you happiness or joy. So this feels very meta, but I I get a lot of joy from podcasts. And that's going to sound awkward, but I I, I really do um, spend a lot of my time, you know, if I'm doing sort of mindless um, work either with data or even just sort of around the house or commuting, I'm always listening to something. And it's, it's just, you know, even in COVID times, we're uh, so much isolated and in our homes and their own spaces. And it, it's just such a great window to be able to, to hear about um, different experiences all over the world. So I really enjoy that. This is like merging my my passions right here. <laughs> Do you like to listen to medical or non medical most of the time? I'm, I would actually say non, non-medical, you yeah, know, a, no, lot that's of, great. Um, <laughs> a lot of just sort of escape in, in that way. But um, I yes. have to say this one, uh, I, I do enjoy the, the few that I've heard so far. It's really excellent. Well, I'm super excited that you're here. We're going to jump into our first case. Uh, like a couple, like these HIV episodes, I don't necessarily have one console question. We're sort of going to walk through the case together. And so you are the pediatric, or I could say we are the pediatric ID (laughs) fellows on call. And so we get a page about an infant born to a mother with HIV. And so this is a consult call that we might get from the NICU or the nursery or even like an outside hospital. Um, So you give them a ring back and the caller says they have a term infant who was born at 38 weeks and two days. The APGAR scores were seven and nine and baby is otherwise doing well. As the fellow on call, what are the initial questions we should be asking? And I asked that sort of to see what what is the additional information we need to gather to make to weigh in on risk assessment and figuring out the best recommendations for this infant. Great. So that is such a um, a crucial call, and and there's a lot of history to gather in that. And you're you know talking with folks who might be in you know outlying community hospitals or could be calling from any number of places, and you're quickly drilling down on on the history. And the most important part would be to understand the the maternal history, particularly as it relates to the history and timing of HIV diagnosis, um, as well as their treatment with ART if they have been on ART and their virologic response. 
Uh, from the pre-ART era, we know that about a third of perinatal transmission occurs in utero, with a remainder two-thirds being in the peripartum or breastfeeding periods. And so um, it would be helpful to know if the mother was diagnosed before this pregnancy, if diagnosis happened during the pregnancy and around uh, which week or trimester, if they had the first trimester testing and third trimester testing, knowing if their test was positive during that time or if it was prior to pregnancy. And then if there's any concern for acute HIV um, having happened during this pregnancy. So just knowing the timing of, um, of when uh, they may have developed HIV infection. And so it would be helpful to know if they had started ART prior to um, or during the pregnancy and, and then around what uh, time during the pregnancy uh, it would be helpful to know what medication regimen she was on and what her viral loads were like during the pregnancy, whether they were sustained throughout or whether she started ART perhaps during the beginning of pregnancy and they came down nicely um, towards the, the end of pregnancy. So you'd want to know um, if she was virally suppressed during the pregnancy, if there were any issues with adherence, and then what the viral load was near the time of delivery. You'd also want to know things like um, whether she received intrapartum ART, uh, what the mode of delivery was, and whether there were any other issues or complications around the time of delivery, um, and including any other remarkable history from the pregnancy, including any other STIs um, or any other um, complications to be aware of. Yeah. And I kind of cheated because I think they usually would call us before, <laughs> but I wanted to make sure that we sort of went through the process of thinking of those questions. Um, so we have more history. Mom is a 16-year-old. She unfortunately had late prenatal care and actually started seeing a community health center around 30 weeks gestation. And so at that point, she had routine prenatal screening, which demonstrated a positive uh, antigen antibody HIV screen. And so she was referred to a high-risk obstetrician and first saw the OB somewhere around about 33 weeks. And so that's the time that she was placed on dolutegravir with tenofovir, disoproxyl fumarate, emtricitabine, so TDFFTC. And so maternal labs demonstrated a CD4 count about 500. And then her initial HIV viral load was approximately 500,000 copies per ml. Within a couple weeks, her viral load had already dropped down to about 100,000, and a week prior to delivery, her viral load was about 5,000. And so before I tell you a little bit more about intrapartum management, I wanted to see if you could talk to us about the risk of perinatal HIV transmission sort of generally so we can see how this patient fits in based on her lab results. Right. And I would say, um, so this is clearly, there's multiple features here that make this a high risk case, just saying that from the, the start. And, and and just a comment that she um, had, it sounds like her positive test was around 30 weeks, and, and then she was subsequently started on treatment around 33 weeks. That itself is a, a bit of a missed opportunity. You would really want to have them started on treatment immediately as soon as that infection is known really to drive down the viral load prior to delivery. So I just wanted to make sure that we make that point. If someone is in a situation where uh, someone is newly found to have HIV during pregnancy, um, you want to start them on treatment right away. And if someone needs help doing that, if it's at a, um, an outlying or community hospital, 
Then there's always uh, calling the ID specialist. There's also the um, National Clinical Consultation Center hotline, which is um, a 24-7 hotline for help with perinatal cases. So just to make sure that we emphasize that point that, um, that we want to start uh, treatment right away. Uh, in terms of the, the things that could be higher risk or lower risk for, for transmission, there is obviously quite a spectrum. So the simplest uh, and lowest risk scenario would be if the mother had been diagnosed and started on treatment prior to this pregnancy, and, and even if, if she had achieved viral suppression before pregnancy. And so the, the guidelines would categorize a low risk for perinatal transmission if the mother was on ART during the pregnancy, and together with that, if she uh, was virally suppressed, meaning less than 50 copies per ml near the time of delivery, and if there are no concerns related to adherence during the pregnancy. And in that scenario, we think the risk of perinatal transmission is about, well, less than 1%. In terms of Beyond that, there is a bit of a spectrum for the HIV transmission risk, and that really is driven by the maternal viral load. So if the mother uh, had not been on ART during the pregnancy, or if she had acute HIV, which is uh, the highest risk scenario, then you're, you're looking at a much higher risk. And so the way the guidelines classify this is either if the mother did not receive antepartum or interpartum ARVs, or if she only received interpartum ARVs, or if she was on ARVs, but she did not have viral suppression near the time of delivery, again, using the threshold of less than 50 copies. And then also, uh, certainly if there was a concern for acute or primary HIV during pregnancy or uh, in their guidelines, breastfeeding, and in the breastfeeding scenario, you would, of course, want to stop breastfeeding immediately. And in that scenario, so there's quite a spectrum. And so the highest risk would be upwards of 25 to 40% uh, risk of transmission if you include the whole period from uh, during the pregnancy uh, through breastfeeding. When you get down to risks that are classified as higher risk scenarios, but perhaps the mother has a viral load of um, just you know, 60 to 100 copies, then that is a, a different scenario, but that risk uh, goes up quite a bit depending on what the, the viral load is. But the threshold, we tend to have a pretty conservative one with that 50 copies per ml when we think about how we want to manage it. Yeah. And so mom remained on her ARVs throughout to labor and delivery and the baby was delivered by scheduled C-section at 38 weeks. Mom did receive IV, Zidovudine, or AZT during labor and delivery. Um, and so we know a couple of things. Indication for C-section. Um, so a mom with the HIV viral load over 1,000 copies or if it was unknown. So our patient hadn't quite gotten to. Um, and that all newborns of perinatal HIV exposure should receive postpartum ART. And so before we jump to the actual medications, I wanted to make sure the listeners had a good understanding of the terminology that gets used in the guidelines and, and you know, textbooks and papers. And so can you talk about, or I guess I should say explain the difference between the terms uh, ARV prophylaxis versus presumptive HIV therapy versus HIV therapy, acknowledging that there's probably some overlap, but I think that can be a little confusing if people are not used to looking at it. Right. And I, I think that it's important to know that when we use those different terms, sometimes we might even be talking about 
the same medications, but it's based on the, the purpose or the, or the rationale for what we're using uh, those medications for. And that can shift within the same uh, clinical management or scenario. So for ARV prophylaxis or antiretroviral prophylaxis, what we're talking about is using either one, two, or three drugs to prevent HIV transmission with the emphasis on prevention. In the recent past, uh, we often talked about using um, two or three drug prophylaxis in what would be a higher risk scenario for perinatal transmission. What we have moved to uh, very recently is uh, initiating presumptive HIV therapy in the newborn period using three drugs and treatment doses for a combination ARV regimen. And that's for those newborns who are at high risk for HIV acquisition. And in that case, we're using the term presumptive HIV therapy because it's a treatment regimen. And that is serving as both our early treatment and as ARV prophylaxis. So at that stage, we don't necessarily know if that um, infant will ultimately develop HIV. And so we're calling it presumptive therapy while we're continuing to follow them. And then when we have a situation where a, a newborn may be documented to have HIV, then we're calling it HIV therapy. So I pushed it off, but now I think is a good time for us to talk about the ART regimen that you would recommend. So I'll ask, you know, which antiretroviral medication are you thinking about and also thinking about duration and how you decide that? So this is, is a high-risk scenario. And the reasons that I would say that were um, one that she was diagnosed quite late in the pregnancy and started on ART at around 33 weeks. And it is really good that she had the response in the viral load that brought the viral load down quite a bit. But this is um, still in what I would consider a pretty high risk scenario. And so I would do the presumptive therapy, and that is with a combination of zidovudine, lamivudine, and either nivirapine or raltegravir. And that would be continued for six weeks. Are there things when you think about like raltegravir versus nevirapine that makes one easier than the other or any reason that you would pick one over the other? Both options would be supported by the current guidelines. The choice of one or the other could be variable depending on the individual circumstances, but also the local availability and um, experience with these medications. If uh, you have the availability and an and option to do raltegravir, um, you want to make sure that there is good teaching on administration. And so raltegravir, um, when, giving to, when given to infants, is, or neonates rather, is dosed as granules, which need to be resuspended, and, um, and then the, the granule packet needs to be discarded uh, with each dose. So you're throwing out the remaining medication from that packet each time you're using it. And so I just wanted to make that point that it, it does need to be taught uh, for caregivers for administering it. The other consideration that would be really important is that for preterm infants, so less than 37 weeks, you would want to use nivirapine. We don't have dosing for raltegravir for preterm infants. And, and also for raltegravir, you would need um, a weight over two kilograms. The benefits of the raltegravir um, are that uh, it is more potent for viral suppression. So particularly in a case where I'm really worried about the, about the possibility of in utero transmission, or if there's a very high risk of transmission around the time of delivery, I would probably prefer to use the raltegravir. There's also less common uh, resistance for raltegravir. So 
reasons to to go with that, but either option uh, would be appropriate. Great. And then I think the other piece that sometimes can trip people, trip people up is testing. And so I know even in the guidelines, when you test infants depends on if they're high risk or not. Can you walk us through when we sh- well, first, what tests we should get and when we should be checking? Right. So for perinatal HIV diagnosis, um, this is going to be based on nucleic acid testing. So typically with RNA-PCR and with RNA and DNA-PCRs being uh, generally equivalent in this scenario. In terms of testing, when you have an infant who's thought to be at low risk of uh, transmission, our testing schedule typically begins with a test at two to three weeks of age, and then at one to two months, and then four to six months. At that point, as, as most people listening to this would know, that the antibody testing is uh, going to reflect the maternal antibodies, and so we don't, uh, we don't use that in, in infants. There are some who would uh, use the antibody testing once the infant is around 18 to 24 months of age or, or after 24 months of age to confirm that they no longer have that maternal antibody. And that's an option to do um, just as a confirmatory test to to provide some reassurance, though not required. Uh, When we talk about those high-risk infants where we're worried about the possibility of, um, in particular, in utero transmission or um, during the peripartum period, there's an additional test at birth or within uh, the first 48 hours. And then we do the typical two to three weeks test, and then again at one to two months. And we are also adding an additional test at about two to six weeks from cessation of our antiretroviral regimen. So we're doing that treatment regimen, and we want to have an additional test to to check if we can detect the virus after we stop that uh, six weeks treatment regimen. And then we're doing the four to six months test again, with our PCR. And again, we have the option to check antibodies once the baby is at least uh, around 18 to 24 months of age, just to confirm that they have loss of maternal antibody. Is there any other important tips or, or counseling that you think the listeners would like to hear about thinking about this case? Right. So in the newborn period, when you're getting these calls from from hospitals or or from uh, the hospital where you might be based at, one of the things that is just part of the newborn um, management is feeding. And in the U.S., we do not recommend uh, breastfeeding because that is a, a potential route for HIV transmission. In other settings where access to clean water is an issue, And in those settings, breastfeeding would be recommended to reduce the risks of infant mortality uh, related to unsafe drinking water. I just wanted to make sure that that listeners know that the DHHS guidelines do now have some guidance on giving uh, advice to women who do uh, want to breastfeed. And importantly, that guidance should really be based around respecting the, the woman's autonomy and her ability to Um, make that decision with good information and uh, knowing the context that she might be situated in. So in this scenario, uh, you do want to make sure to 
let mothers know that the risk of HIV transmission to the baby, it is zero when using formula. And when using breast milk, that the risk of transmission would be low if, if the mother is virally suppressed, but it's not zero. Um, and there have been documented cases of transmission through breast milk when the mother is virally suppressed. So that's important for, for people to be aware of. The other piece of that is mixed feeding is actually a higher risk of, of transmission than, than breastfeeding alone. So what we really want to do is make sure that we give mothers information on um, how to reduce the risk of transmission if they are um, going to choose uh, to breastfeed. And I think that's what's really important. The other piece around uh, this time period in, in the newborn nursery and that initial care for the infant is that we just want to be thinking about how we're supporting these mothers. I think this case that you described is is really concerning just in terms of the vulnerability that that young woman must be experiencing. Uh, we have to remember that young women and certainly all people who are living with HIV have significant experiences of stigma and trauma. But when you think about women who are going through pregnancy and delivery, they, they have quite a lot of vulnerability and, and some trauma even just associated with engagement in healthcare. And so we just want to be sure that we're coming to those discussions with an understanding that there is a widespread impact of trauma in this population. There's very high prevalence of trauma among women living with HIV and that we, when we provide care and, and counseling, that we do that in a way that we try to uh, resist uh, re-traumatizing the, the individual. And so I, I just wanted to make sure that um, we think about that when we provide care to these moms. Yeah, that's such a great point. And actually, we have a surprise case too, but we mentioned the mom in this scenario was a teenager at the time, and we're actually going to go back and check on her because she ended up becoming one of our patients as well. But I'm actually jumping forward in time a little bit. It's now been about two years since her delivery. So she is about to have her 18th birthday. She was about 16. And so she, for the most part, has been fully suppressed with dolutegravir, TDF-FTC. She's only had a few blips or low-level viremia, maybe a handful of times. But unfortunately, around this time, you get some lab work back, and her HIV viral load is about 30,000 copies. And so you arrange for follow-up in clinic, and she comes in, and she admits to missing medications sort of every once in a while. Oh, maybe that has picked up in the past few months or so. Um, and then when you try to probe, she mostly kind of just says, you know, I feel fine. I just forget sometimes. And so we know that adolescents and young adults struggle more with adherence than their adult counterparts. And unfortunately, that leads to lower rates of viral suppression. Um, so I wanted us to spend a little bit of time thinking about barriers that our adolescent patients face. And, you know, what are your sort of strategies as you try to figure that out in clinic, how you figure out what your patient is struggling with, and try to help them cope and, and give suggestions for ART adherence? It's a big topic. <laughs> right. It's a, it's a complex and, and big topic in and of itself. And I, I know I will, I will never uh, be able to get to sort of all the, the things that we think about around adherence, um, but I, I can give sort of our, our overview and, and how I tend to approach um, these scenarios. The first thing that I sort of struck me about this is that it is an achievement that she was virally suppressed. And I, I'm hopefully if I've been following her uh, during this time, I would have been aware of the things that were helping her 
in being able to uh, to achieve that. So in terms of what was her support system, how was she keeping it as part of her routine? Because that is really impressive for somebody who's uh, gone through that kind of life change, that they're able to do that and and um, and to be virally suppressed. So. Hopefully, if I've established um, some rapport and gotten to know her during this time, I might have an idea of some of the things that are really helpful for her. But in, in this scenario and in, in knowing about um, the recent increase in her viral load, I'd be thinking about a number of things. Uh, in terms of barriers to adherence in, in adolescence, so part of this comes from normal adolescent development. And adolescents are at a stage where they are really developing their identities, learning who they are as a person. It's a stage where it's normal for them to develop a little bit of separation or independence from from their families, having a little bit of risk-taking, prioritizing their peer relationships, and placing a lot of importance on those, uh, those peer relationships as well. They might not necessarily be thinking about you know, taking a medication, they might not necessarily be thinking about more long-term health issues. They're focused on things that are a priority to them as they manage those developmental tasks. And I think that it's important to remember that this is part of normal development and that we're trying to support adolescents through that time period until a point where it becomes a little bit easier. And I think something that that come, becomes quite clear is that Adolescence, as much as stigma is really impactful for everyone who's living with or affected by HIV, it's really important for adolescents because those peer relationships are so influential to them and, and probably for another, a number of reasons as they're developing their, their individual identities that stigma has a, a really big influence on them. They're also dealing with a lot of um, risk for mental health challenges. And so they can be quite influenced by those kinds of social factors, and it can have an impact on how they feel, how they might develop some mental health um, challenges. And they, and they really need to be supported to be able to continue their care during some of those challenges that they might, they might face. So to, to get to that, I, I did want to talk a little bit about some of the approach when you have an adolescent who has an increased viral load. And um, I typically start with some of the basics around medication taking and so understanding how are they taking their meds, what time of the day are they taking them, um, whether that's you know a, a single pill or whether they have multiple medications. Is that time the same time every day, which is what we would want, or is there some variability in when they're able to take their medication? Is it part of their routine or are there times when they might have changes to the routine if they're doing if they're busy with work or school or if they have some days when it, it just doesn't happen at the time that they had planned it to. Whether they have any reminder systems or whether they have somebody who helps remind them um, would be important to know. And what happens during those times that if if what they're saying is that they might forget from time to time, trying to pin down is it because of a change in routine or what exactly is happening at those times when they um, they might forget. And then you're, you're asking more about some of those issues we mentioned related to um, their support in the home and whether there has been a change uh, perhaps in where they might be staying or who they're staying with, whether they have a uh, romantic partner or whether there's some change in their living situation that has 
even in, in minor ways, might have changed the way that they might be able to, to take their medications or whether there's something that might signal um, challenges related to mental health or uh, when it comes to things like internalization of stigma, uh, experiences of depression or trauma, whether these uh, could be something to, to recognize and identify. And then there's um, just issues with treatment fatigue or pill fatigue and, and whether it's at a point in um, this person's life when they're just not really wanting to take a medication every day, whether it's become a frustration or whether it's become something, something that reminds them of some initial trauma. So certainly in a case like this, you wonder about that experience of not only going through pregnancy as a teenager, but also learning about an HIV diagnosis. And sometimes just taking those medications reminds people of something that was really traumatizing. And so sometimes that could be a factor or it could be, could be a number of, of different things. Something to note about this case. So uh, the, the, in this case scenario, the adolescent is uh, about to turn 18. And so a new option that might be something to consider would be a long-acting injectable. And we have very limited experience with this um, with adolescents, and you would want them to be in a place where they are virally suppressed and where you know that they would be able to, um, to do the regular monthly appointments for this, if this is something that, that might be considered as an option. But I just wanted to throw it out there that this would be a new thing on the horizon if she is just not wanting to take a, a medication every day or if there's other reasons why that could be a barrier, but would perhaps be more interested in the idea of coming for frequent visits for that injectable. Another thing to consider for the management of adolescents that's really part of our routine care is thinking about assessing their readiness for and preparing for that eventual transition to adult HIV care services. And so helping pediatric patients and young adult patients navigate that jump to adult care is obviously a huge topic that we're not going to completely cover here. But I thought we could take a few moments just to think about it, at least in the context of our case here. I think in this scenario, we certainly wouldn't be in a place where we would be ready for transition, we would want to be at a point where the adolescent is, is more stable in terms of uh, viral suppression and where we think we have a good handle on things. And so that's a process throughout adolescence. For adolescents that we manage in clinic who may have been born with HIV, that process includes educating them and sharing about their status uh, to them. And so that itself is a process as well where we work through the developmentally appropriate education that we can give to adolescents first in, in childhood and in some developmentally appropriate explanations for why they're taking medications, working with the parents on, on how to plan for disclosure and, um, and what kinds of education we can provide over uh, those adolescent years that increase as appropriate with, um, with what the adolescent is ready to to, to understand. And I think that, so together with disclosure, with sharing of status to adolescents, we also assess what their readiness might be towards later adolescents for transition of care. And for some adolescents that might be earlier, around age 18, and for others, sometimes we keep them until around, you know, age 23, 24. Um, and it depends a little bit on the circumstances for that family, but also you know, depending on 
the circumstances in the clinic, whether you think that they might be better supported in that clinic until they can transition. But we're assessing things like what their abilities are for navigating care, how much they know about accessing care and being able to manage things a little bit independently before we would transition them to an adult service. So as we get ready to wrap up this episode, and actually this entire HIV Summer Series, I thought a really nice way to end would be to give a quick note about the legacy of Ryan White. And I suspect that this name might sound familiar to most people who've done any sort of HIV-related care in the U.S., but just in case you don't know, I will fill you in. Ryan White was a young man diagnosed with HIV-AIDS following a blood product transfusion for his hemophilia in 1984. He was 13 at the time, one of only a few children known to have HIV in the U.S., and he was only given a few or up to six months to live. But he was able to regain some of his health and actually wanted to return to school. But when he did return, he encountered AIDS-related discrimination and stigma. And despite doctors advising that he posed no risk to other students, AIDS was very poorly understood, and many parents and teachers argued against his attendance. Along with his mother, he rallied for his right to attend school and in the process gained national attention. And so he really became the face of public education about HIV for a period of time. And so he actually lived five years longer than predicted, but unfortunately died in April of 1990. It was about one month before his high school graduation, but also just a few months before Congress passed the legislation bearing his name, the Ryan White Comprehensive AIDS Resources Emergency or CARE Act. The Ryan White program provides a comprehensive system of HIV primary medical care, essential support services, and medications to people with HIV. And Raleigh Hospital and Indianapolis definitely played a role in his story. It's where he got his diagnosis. It's where he created relationships and was taken care of. I would love to hear if you have any other thoughts or comments on, you know, what Ryan's legacy means and and what we could take away from it. Absolutely. And um, I think often about about Ryan White's legacy and, and our section at at Riley Children's in Indiana University, we had the experience of having treated Ryan White in the 80s and um, in the 1990. And um, and our section is is named uh, for him. And his mother actually continues to be a wonderful advocate for people living with HIV and for young people. She continues to do events locally, for example, at our at our children's museum here in Indianapolis. And um, and we even share the, the book that Ryan White authored to our patients and, and talk about him and his legacy. I think what his story really shows is the ways in which young people are able to speak to their own needs and, and influence change. And that includes increasing access to care, access to science and to research and and being able to to speak to their own experiences in a way that those of us who haven't gone through it wouldn't be able to. One of the really remarkable things that we've seen in managing treatment for adolescents living with HIV is that there's such a huge support that they get when they have peers who are living with HIV. And so having access to a peer support group, a peer mentor, a peer navigator, those are some of the highest impact things that we can do uh, for young people. 
And when we see youth leading in advocacy and activism, we really see huge things happen for for young people and and for the HIV community. That um, that's a big part of the story of HIV is really over and over again young people leading the way and and advocating for for change and for access to treatment. So I really am very appreciative of of his example and of the the work that he did in advocating for young people with HIV and um, particularly with the challenges that he faced in doing that. Yeah. I knew that these episodes, we can't cover everything, but, you know, I think this is such an amazing start for someone, especially if someone is starting their fellowship and about to get this call anytime now. I always end by just asking if there's anything else that you wanted to pass along um, or that we may have missed along the way. There's always so much more <laughs> that we could talk about. <laughs> but, it's unfair. So, yeah, there's, there's so much to discuss. And I think particularly, you know, we talk about, you know, from the spectrum of babies or even, mm-hmm. you know, during pregnancy all the way through adolescence and, um, and, you know, of course, supporting adolescents through pregnancy. So it's really a, a life cycle of understanding um, development and, and how um, we can best support people. And I think I would just mention that we really do have just so much really just privilege in being able to to learn from our patients, to work together with them. You know, this is one of the areas in, in ID where we have probably the most continuity with, with our patients. And we're managing things from the medications, but also trying to understand the social challenges and en- engage with some of the things that our, our, our patients face. And typically, we do that in a setting where we have perhaps multidisciplinary supports, uh, which might include a social worker, perhaps a pharmacist. It might be different in different care settings if there's access to either a mental health supporter or a peer support person on the team. And so I think, you know, when we, we do this, it's in the setting of having a, a team of support that can, can really help adolescents. And it's really just a wonderful privilege to be able to, to work with this group. Well, thank you so much. All it means is that we need to have more episodes. <laughs> true. But thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, that is a wrap on Fresh Start, our HIV summer series. I hope that you enjoyed these episodes. And if you haven't already checked them out, take a listen to the last three as well for some learning about HIV in adults, HIV in pregnancy, and thinking about PrEP. A special thanks to Darcy, Meredith, Elise, Rebecca, and Leslie for making this an awesome project. We are actually going to be moving back to the regular schedule of episodes every two weeks, so you can catch our next one in mid-July. If you like Febrile, share the podcast with a friend and check us out on the website, febrilepodcast.com, on Twitter or on Instagram. As always, you can find written compliments to the audio podcast known as Consult Notes on the website, as well as our bank of ID infographics. Please tweet or email me if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, or if you'd like to help out with a future episode. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.